Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 161. So glad you could join me. Uh, today's guest is Jill Kendall. She'll be here in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Whatever you can do to help poetry spread around the internet would be much appreciated. It's a free show. Um, it's a great time, two hours, two hours plus of your life that you'll um, always enjoy and, and appreciate. So please do do whatever you can to help spread it around. That's all that we ask. Um, now, as always, we're going to start with some Poets Respond Poets. We have two, um, two poems this week, and we're going to do, start with a preview by Bruce Bennett, who, by coincidence, is next week's guest on the Rattlecast, if you can believe it or not. Um, he had a poem about, um, for, for Poets Respond about Bruce, uh, or, um, Ken Burns' new documentary. So um, let's talk to him. Um, hey, Bruce, how you doing? Good. Yeah, it's really cool to have you. So um, let's see. Hang on one second. There we go. Okay, so uh, so Bruce, uh, tell me about this uh, this documentary and and what what inspired the poem. Documentaries on all sorts of things, and was looking forward to this one. Uh, the there are many documentaries on the Holocaust, so I didn't know how we would approach it, and we saw the first one last Monday, and uh, it prominently featured. Uh, Holocaust survivors or members of their family. Mm -hmm. And as always, it's very moving, but it particularly struck me uh, watching it that there were three or four people featured and the obviously uh, two of them were extremely old. And uh, as I was watching it, I unfortunately began to connect as many of us are with current state of politics and the way things are in the world, it's hard not to. Uh, so without being too specific about that, um, and this was only the first of three. So we we saw the other two. Uh, it's three episodes. And uh, uh, so I sent this in on, uh, I guess, Monday after watching the first one, either Monday or Tuesday. Yeah, there were uh, there's several poems about this, um, so it must be a really important documentary. I haven't seen it myself yet, but it must be um, really powerful, given all the poems I read about it this week. Uh, do you want to go really? ahead and read this? On viewing Ken Burns' documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. Uh, whenever you're ready, I'll put it up on screen. Go ahead and read it. <clears throat> some made it. Some did not. You hear their stories here. It is as if by lot. Some made it. Some did not. Who chose which straws they got? No answers ever clear. Some made it, some did not. You hear their stories here. They want their stories told so no one can forget. They hold on and they hold. They want their stories told. Though they are frail and old, they are not finished yet. They want their stories told so no one can forget. We listen and we think, how could they be so strong? How low can countries sink? Then look around and think, we too are on the brink. We may not have too long. We listen and we think, how could they be so strong? We hear their stories here. Some made it, some did not. 
No answers ever clear. We hear their stories here. We listen and we fear we too may draw their lot. We hear their stories here. Some made it, some did not. Beautiful poem there. Uh, that was uh, Bruce Bennett with On Viewing Ken Burns' documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. Really powerful um, trimeter poem there with those rhymes that just repeat. Um, just wonderful stuff. Thanks so much for sharing that, Bruce. And we'll talk to you next week for a whole hour. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and it's really neat that you could be here uh, the week before as well. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, very cool. My pleasure. Thanks, Bruce. Okay. Okay, and now we're going to take a look at the Sunday's poem as well. And um, this was How Many Times by Susan Su. And Susan's in China, um, so she could not um, be here for the show. It's like a, it's a bad time, and um, technology as well was an issue too, I think. Uh, but here is the note that she wrote. This is Susan Su. Um, this is her note about the poem from Sunday, which um, people have already read, at least. So let's take a look at that. Um, here it is. Uh, Susan Su, September 18. 2.40 a.m. On the highway of Guzan province, a bus carrying 47 people flipped on it, onto its side. 20 people were injured. 27 people died. I wish the dead find peace and eternal rest, and I send my deepest condolences to those who lost their loved ones. My grief and anguish forced me to write this poem. It was the only thing I could do. That was her note about this poem. And here is, uh, I'll have to read it for her. This is Susan Sue's poem. Oh, beautiful. And how many times? To live is to count, he concluded when we clasped on my apartment bed. He was a fireman, a man who touched my legs like tracing a bruised star. At night, he talked about people disappearing in the smoke. We were in that burning building, seven of us, only six made it back to life. He always paused here as if he still felt the fire licking over his lap, blurred voices counting down to his face. I am always thinking of seven, you know, but I only count to six. It was August. After sex, he let me wet his wounds with my lips and told me an old Chinese myth. Time is a fairy adrift on leth. People lose track of their property. The day they stop counting, they fall into bare black stones and become the flower of fire, Manjuseka. He had large hands, large enough to scoop the moon when he cupped my face. I was reminded of my grandpa. He was a tough man. His face was never shaved in the right way. Black stubble sprouted out like tendrils until he was put under treatment. I counted. Four fingernails, two teeth, no hair. Only a small shard of his face belonged to him. They shoveled a stone to place his ashes. I watched him grow back again. This time he was red. I count. Half pair of teeth, brace, additional aspirins, keys, three nail cutters, no mole on my left knee. Inside a new red suitcase, I put D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers, which he gave to me last winter. He, we have broken up long enough. I think of him when I watch the news tonight. A bus turned down to the ground. Twenty-seven people died. I am not sure if he still says in his job, if he does, he will be there. Lug up the burned black bus, pull the locked windows, press against the hot iron crust. What you have touched, he once told me, will grow in you. Years later, he will bring up the night. How he took off his gloves and touched the bus shards, all the rubble, the red rear view, soft shreds of lives goldened in his hands. In the dark, 
Another woman will wet his wounds with her lips until fire grows back and his fissures until he whispers that story. But how many times should we count to bring them back? And that was yesterday's poem, the Sunday poem of the week, How Many Times by Susan Sue. Now we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with our main guest, uh, Jill Kendall, in just a moment. So hold tight and I will be right back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, this week's guest is Jill Kendall. Her newest book, The Clean Daughter, a cross-continental memoir, is a story about building family across cultural, linguistic, and geographical divides. Kendall's essays have been published in multiple journals and anthologies, and her poems have appeared twice in Rattle. Her first book, So Many Africas, Six Years in a Zambian Village, from Autumn House Press, won the Autumn House Nonfiction Prize and the Sartan Women's Literary Award. Kendall currently lives with her husband in Fargo-Moorhead, a few blocks away from the Red River, um, Kendall also blogs about writing and her recovery from brain injury. And uh, here she is, Jill Kendall. Hey, Jill, how you doing? Hi, Timothy. I'm great. Happy to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm so so glad yeah. to have you as a guest. Um, this, Thank you. Uh, it, it's really, you know, we have poets as guests um, so often. And, and you're a poet, too. But to have a guest that's a, that's a memoirist um, as, a, as your main form of writing, it'll be really interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a lot about that. Um, so, so can you maybe, I want to re- read a passage from this book. Do you want to start out explaining what the book's about and then, um, and we'll read a little bit from it. Sure. So the title of the book is The Clean Daughter, a cross-continental memoir. And clean daughter is sort of a bad translation of the Dutch word for daughter-in-law. So I grew up in North Dakota and married a man from the Netherlands. And the book circles around my relationship with my father-in-law, Isak who was um, never uh, the, we never had the relationship that I had hoped for. And um, so it's about living on four different continents. My husband works with agriculture and subsistence farmers, and we lived in Zambia, Africa, and then we lived in Indonesia, the UK, the Netherlands, and came back to the States. But primarily I'm, trying to understand my father-in-law and what it means to build a family when families 5,000 miles apart and when personalities are really very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a very, very touching story. Very fascinating, too. There's so many things that come up through it. Um, do you want to read a passage from it so we could get a feel? I do. Um, I'd just like to say that the book is broken up into nine sections. And after that, it has 188 subsections, little tiny like many chapters. Um, and I would also add that Isak, when he was an older man, decided to end his life using euthanasia in the Netherlands. And he was not having a terminal diagnosis and um, was healthy and still living on his own and driving. And we had a very hard time understanding his choice. And so this chapter is about halfway through the book. And um, the people in it would be Johan, who's my husband, Isak, who's my father-in-law, and Andrea, my sister-in-law. And at this point, it's 2008, and Isak has been talking about euthanasia, but it hasn't, uh, he hasn't been um, given permission from his doctors. And so, what page is it? I know you said, but I forgot. 
165. 65. Okay. I thought it was 25. Yeah. Okay. There you go. When they hang up, Johan calls Andrea and she tells him tomorrow. The doctor's coming tomorrow. Johan calls his father back, pleads with him, knowing it will be their final conversation. And what can you say when you've been given this awful power, this knowledge of the future? Later that night, we tell our two oldest children, Christina and Joran, about Opa's decision. We tell them that Opa Kandel has chosen euthanasia. They are heartbreaking conversations. We don't tell the two youngest children. I don't know. We just can't bring ourselves to do it. It will be four years until we learn the details of that day, the minute-by-minute -minute happenings, the food eaten, the carefully chosen music, the actions of the people present, Isak skipping down the hallway to his bedroom as if going on vacation. For four years, I will only know this. On Monday, June 23rd, Johan does not stay home. He goes to work, restless, agitated, and inconsolable. Today, at one o'clock, looking at his watch. Today, at one o'clock, waiting. Today, at one o'clock. Johan waits 4,000 miles and seven time zones away. It breaks a heart. It shatters a world. There is a knowledge not to be born. To become like God is not a gift to be coveted. And that was a section from The Clean Daughter, uh, Jill Kendall's memoir, um, a cross-continental memoir, that is. Um, so so it's really interesting the way that the um, the memoir is arranged, um, that that you know, you start out with the with the family being built and and, and Johan and and moving around the world, and then it becomes sort of it sort of swirls around everything, and then it becomes focused on um, um, your father in law, who was such a mysterious figure in your life. Um, how did you decide, like, how to arrange this memoir? Like, what was the <laughs> like? Like, it's such a big contrast. It reminds me a lot, actually, of um, Anna Evans' book about the Titanic, where the first half is all about the Titanic, and you're like thinking that that's what it's going to be about, and then like it it swirls into her um, mother's, um, you know, mother's death, and and the Titanic is a metaphor for that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, she was on a couple, you know, a few weeks ago, so that makes me think of that. But it's a very similar, like, sh like sh transition between in topics in the book. Like, you don't realize that it's going to be so much about that really fascinating story that you seem to become obsessed with. Mm -hmm. So, so how did you decide how to organize this book? Well, it took about a year, and I'm part of a writers group, five women who all write, and um, I tried different ways. I, I first wrote it with. A whole a chapter of euthanasia, a chapter of World War II, a chapter of our relationship. It was too bouncy. And um, eventually just settled on doing it chronologically the way I learned. So you learn about Isak when I do. You learn about euthanasia when I do or World War II. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to take the reader on the journey that I took in my life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just a, a fascinating book. And since we, we talked about... Um... Um, your father-in-law already. Um, what is it like? I mean, that was one of the most interesting aspects of the book is just this, this mystery that surrounds why he made that choice that he did. Mm -hmm. um, how common is that? You know, and it's been maybe what, 20 years since it's been available um, 
Yeah, how, euthanasia how was legalized yeah, yeah. Yeah, in 2002 in mm -hmm. the Netherlands. And at first you had to have a terminal illness and be in excruciating pain. And they had a lot of uh, parameters around it. And every year it's gotten a little bit easier and a few more types of people have been able to apply for it and get accepted for euthanasia in the legal system. So right now, uh, between five and 6,000 people per year in the Netherlands choose euthanasia as a way that they want to die. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and do you know like what percentage of that? Is it, um, you know, mm -hmm. a, a large compared to the people who that do it for illness? I, sorry, that I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, it's such an interesting topic. I mean, what, you know, I mean, I, I always felt like if, you know, we don't have the right to bodily autonomy and to make our own choices, then what rights do we really have? So I've always mm -hmm. felt like it's important to be allowed, but then at the same time to have no explanation for it uh, must have been so difficult for everybody in the family. It was difficult for the family because he made the decision and that was final and there weren't discussions about it with him or with his doctor. And um, in the Netherlands, people really uh, value autonomy and believe that their life is their life. And I understand that to a certain extent, but that's one of the things I wrestle with because we're also a family and we're united and um, the decisions that we make affect other people. And I, I would say that I'm pro-hospice or pro um, some of the great ways there are available for making death a better experience. So maybe I would just call it a lost opportunity because um, he just closed the door on everybody. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it was very much like a suicide in the way that we reacted to it. Yeah, it seems like it would be. Um, how much, you know, he was always closed off, I guess, as a person, mm -hmm. judging by, you know, it was one of those people who he's very regimented and like everything was at a certain time, like in a military type way. And it turns out that he was in the military and had rough experiences in World War II. Um, so what, how much did you know about him going in? And then how much did you find out in the process of writing this book? Well, he wasn't in the military. He was a child. Oh, he yeah. was, he was, um, I think he was about 14 when the war started and about 20 when it ended. Um, he didn't speak about the war, so we didn't know much about it. And so part of my research was to go back to the Netherlands and actually study World War II and uh, the town he lived in and what was happening with him. So that was uh, starting to open my eyes as the war became less textbook and more personalized in my life. It gave me a lot of understanding for especially the fear. And I think his daughter, Andrea, uh, my sister-in-law told me that she felt that control was Isak's way of loving people mm. or protecting them. And I don't think I understood that while he was alive, that he was trying to show love, but it came across as do this, do this now. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you must. And um, we just had really different personalities. So mm -hmm. it just, we rubbed each other. Yeah, yeah. And, and how much have you like pieced together his motivation? Do you have any like idea why he made the choice he did? Or, I mean, in, in all um, as far as what I have come to understand is that he was afraid of the unknown. Hmm. He always needed to be in control. 
and he was afraid to become dependent. And uh, to be fair to him, his wife died from Alzheimer's and he watched her suffer for four or five years mm -hmm. and he didn't want that to happen to himself. Um, but on the other side, he had a lot of living still to do and was still preaching and alive and vibrant and just decided it's over. Yeah. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, is there another excerpt you might read so we can sort of have more oh. of a feel for the book before we move on to poems? Sure. Um, Isaac and I struggled a lot over his, well, I struggled with him a lot over just his personality. And part of that was, I grew up in North Dakota. My husband grew up in the Netherlands. And so when my father-in-law would say things, I could not decipher what was him, what was Dutch, and what was just um, the Condell family as a whole. So I, I was often confused. And I tend to write about things that confuse me when I'm searching for some clarity. Um, so I'd like to read page 321, it's called Contronyms, 2017. Good? Yeah. Okay. Perhaps to understand my antipathy towards Isak, I need to look closer at the contradictions within which he lived his life. So many opposites, so many incongruities. In English, there's a category of words called contronyms. They're spelled alike, but have opposite meanings. Clip, to bind together or to snip apart. Contronyms are also called Janus words, Janus being the Roman god, depicted with a beard and two faces. He could see forward and backward without turning his head. Isak and Janus caught between two worlds, peace and war, earth and heaven. January, the first month of the year, a time to look back, a time to look forward. Regrets and resolutions. Isak lived caught between the past and the future, fear and hope, anger and love. I think he lived much of his life with one foot in the war of his youth and one foot in the prosperity of his adulthood. Bolt, to secure or to flee. Perhaps it was these very contradictions which wore him out. Janus, the god of beginnings and endings, the god of entrances and exits, the doorkeeper of heaven. How do you navigate a world that presents you with such opposites? Cleave, to adhere strongly or to separate? How do you live in freedom when you're caught in a trap, left to remain or to depart? How do you find a way to breathe when you're already in your coffin? Where to endure or to deteriorate? And that was another selection from The Clean Daughter, um, Jill Kendall's memoir, and, and it's a great example of the way the book is written, which feels very poetic. It's very, um, you know, it's written in a way that's sort of, um, 
I don't know, like Bluets. Um, who is the author of Bluets? You know, but but the way that they're they're pieces together, they're very short. Like each each chapter, the, the sections are short, and they feel poetic in the way that they're constructed. Like it's like a poet's mindset, collaging mm-hmm. different experiences together and and moving through concepts and ideas like that as you tell the story. Um, how how did the 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 book come to be like that there's a very i mean i don't read memoir much to be honest so i don't know how common this is but it it felt very interesting in in the in sort of the brevity and the the focus of um each section in the way that it it could have been a poem um yeah so so how did you approach the the memoir in your your storytelling well i didn't start writing till i was 40 and um I learned to write short is how I was first taught. And I'd go to writing conferences, writing retreats, workshops every year. And um, at the very first workshop I ever went to, we brought in a piece that was 1,500 words long. And we workshopped it and went through it. And the instructor said, okay, bring it back tomorrow, cut it in half. (laughs) So I, I worked all night on it. And I brought back exactly 750 words the next day. But I learned to write short and tight. And that's just always stayed with me. It's what I like to read. And uh, I do not know of too many memoirs that are written with so many chapters, like 188 chapters sounds ridiculous, right? (laughs) But they are, they're, they're very short. On average, each of the chapters is um, 900 words. Yeah. And and was that, I mean, um, was I like writing that way? It was very conscious. Uh Um, because I like things to be tight and I say what I want to say and I don't like to be flowery and redundant. And there's also a lot to say because um, the book covers a lot of the Netherlands during World War II and what my father-in-law grew up with, but also the progression of euthanasia in the Netherlands. And then there's all the countries that Hans and I were, or Johan and I were living in and moving around and working in so to write big chapters, it would have been, you know, a, like massive, like three volume book or something. And uh, no. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great. I mean, it's just so, so good for attention spans, the way that it that operates mm. now. You know, I think shorter is better in a way because our, you know, yeah. our world is so quick with things flying yeah. at us constantly. Um, and when I told you to read, if you could read, asked you if you could read an excerpt, I was thinking they'd be longer because I hadn't read the book yet. Um, uh-huh. do you want to read? I just want to make sure people get a feel for this book. Do you want to read one more section? Okay. Well, I only had two picked out. So let's see what I open up to here. Oh, I'll read a funny um, section that is about a Dutch uh, tradition that had me really thrown when I first went to the Netherlands. So this is on page 120, and I'll start halfway down the page at We Arrive. So um, at this point in the story, I think we have three children and we've just arrived in the Netherlands from Indonesia. And um, Opa is the Dutch word for grandfather and Oma is the Dutch word for grandmother. So um, we're all jet lagged and uh, getting used to cold weather and being in Holland, okay? Oh, I should say, we biked about five miles with our three children to get to their house. We arrive and we get off our bikes and We arrive and the strangest thing happens. Opa sets the table. He serves a typical meal of meat and potatoes and green beans. 
He's doing most of the cooking now. It's beyond Oma's ability. Isak serves himself and Oma. Then he gets out cold cheese sandwiches and sets them on the table for us. He bows his head to pray and looks up smiling. Hey, Smakaluk. I look at Johan for cues. Is Isak annoyed at us? Did we do something wrong? Why are we eating cold cheese sandwiches and they're having a hot supper meal? Johan carries on as if all is normal. I'm so confused. Did his dad treat him this way for punishment? Is this some sort of passive aggressive displeasure? Later, as we bike back to our rental, I ask Johan, what was going on there? What do you mean, he asks. Why did we get sandwiches while your folks ate a full meal? They were having their warm amaltite, their warm meal, he answers, as if it should be plain as day. I don't get it. Is he mad at us, I ask? Jill, in the Netherlands, we only eat one warm meal a day. Pa knew we were out this morning. We had a warm amaltite at the restaurant earlier for lunch, so he made us sandwiches. I can't believe it. I can't imagine my mother serving different meals to different guests. And I'm not only offended, I'm hungry. Sitting with a cold cheese sandwich while people around me ate pork chops, potatoes, green beans, and applesauce just didn't do the trick for me. It's late and the kids are crabby and tired. I tell them to get their pajamas on. Usually they're asleep by this time, but I don't care. I go to the cupboard and get out some snacks. The kids pad out to the kitchen in their sleepwear. Come on, kids, I say, let's eat. Hot chocolate and toast, anyone? Yeah. There's another section from um, The Clean Daughter by Jill Kendall. And... Um, there's a question here, and I should say if anybody has any questions for Jill, um, please leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll pass any along that you might want me to. Um, so Dick Westheimer, who also mentions that you read po you read your book like a poet would, <laughs> which mm. I, I completely agree. Um, he also <laughs> says it looks like you paint, um, looking oh, at your background in the, in the, I do. In the frame. Yeah. Yeah. So he would love to hear how um, your visual art informs your writing and vice versa. I would say for most, well, I started writing at the age of 40. And I would say for most of my writing, I tend to write to understand a problem or to work out a gap in my life, something that just doesn't make sense. And when you live in multiple cultures with multiple languages, there's a lot of gaps, you know, especially from my years in Zambia. So I tend to write about the harder things that I'm looking for clarity. And my painting, I tend to do for fun. It's usually bright and cheerful. And um, I paint a lot of horses because I grew up with horses. So I call it my um, horse painting therapy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, of all the places that you've lived, which is a, a bunch of them, um, yeah. where did you feel like most at home? Like, what did you what did you love the most? Is there a certain place that you just connected with um, when you got there? Uh, Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, Indonesia has a thousand and some islands. I don't remember how many, but we lived on the northernmost island in the northern tip of that island, which was called Sumatra. Mm -hmm. And we were way up in the mountains working with co coffee farmers. And I think what made the difference is um, I learned the language. 
So the Indonesian language is fairly easy to learn, whereas the Zambian languages are very difficult. And when you can walk out your door and talk to your neighbors, you feel more like a human being. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I love the food. I love the flowers and the vegetables and the the art. It's the old, old culture that's um, really fascinating. So I loved Indonesia. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. How many languages do you speak after all those travels? <laughs> I speak English well. <laughs> I speak Dutch moderate. And uh, my, I've lost most of my Indonesian, but, you know, I could go to the market when I lived there and talk to the women and mm-hmm. visit. But, um, yeah, and, my husband speaks more languages than I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, um, CB99 Videos, which is uh, Carla Schwartz, she asks... Um, uh, where the where clean in the title comes from? Can you explain that expression? You said it was a um, yes. a sort of a rough translation, but but what does it mean? And what is the the origin and the the meaning behind that? Well, the origin is unknown, but the word shon means clean, and doctor daughter. So if you say uh, daughter in law in Dutch, it's shon doctor, clean daughter, and um, I don't know anybody that knows the origin. And there's a funny story uh, that I thought of myself as a clean daughter for about 20 years. And one day I said something about it to my husband and he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, schoendachter, clean daughter, daughter-in-law. And he said, well, Dutch people would never think of that. And um, I didn't believe him. So I called his sister and asked her and she said, oh, that's really cute. <laughs> So I had this misunderstanding of thinking of myself as a clean daughter, Mm -hmm. but the Dutch would never tear the word apart and make two separate Mm -hmm. words out of it. Like something like if you translated honeymoon into another language and then called it a sticky thing and a lunar object. And so it, it doesn't make sense, but I think it's representative of what it's like to live with different languages. So phone doctor, daughter in law clean daughter. Yeah, that's fascinating. And yeah. so yeah. is that why you chose it as the title of the book? How, how much yeah. you know, deliberation yeah. did you have about what to call it? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I care a lot about words. And I think it's funny having words translated right and translated wrong and misunderstood. So part of my writing is about language. And um, ha- Johan and I had a lot of misunderstandings over language when we were first married. He would say things that I'd be offended or vice versa. He one day told me that I, he said, Jill, you have such a small heart. (laughs) I'm like, what? And in Dutch, small heart means big heart because they would say that your heart is so small that the tiniest of things can move it. So a lot of the book plays around with language. Yeah. uh, and, and how did you meet Johan? How did you end up, um, you know, marrying a he, Dutch? He was, he was yeah. uh, in the States. He had worked in Zambia for three years before we met. And he came to the States to do some more schooling. So we met out in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Got married a year later. And within six weeks of our wedding, we had moved to Zambia to work with farmers and uh, took an eight-hour bus ride across the country, got in a canoe, and took a 10-hour canoe ride 
out to the village that we lived in and we lived there for six years. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Welcome to marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, what yeah. is there any advice you can pass on? I mean, being in, you know, newly married in such a different culture, completely isolated. Um, you know, what can you, what can you share? What wisdom can you, uh, you pass along to people who, who maybe were just married or something like that? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get married or don't go to Zambia. Oh, in the middle of I, I think it would have been easier had we been married a year and mm -hmm. knew each other better. I mean, I was marrying a man from a different country. I'd been in Holland one time when we were married. So um, I think we would have been smarter to have waited a year before we went to a third culture because mm -hmm. we were already dealing with two. Yeah. But having said that, you know, I was young and interested and intrigued by the world and it was fascinating and um i wrote a book out of it <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what was it uh that, that brought you back to um you're you're in the minnesota north dakota area now what, what brought you back uh after indonesia johan decided he wanted to do his phd in agriculture mm -hmm. and i grew up in north dakota and my folks were like we want you to come back here with those grandkids so NDSU had a good agriculture PhD program. Mm -hmm. So we basically came back to be near the grandparents. Yeah. And with the intent that we would go back overseas again, but that didn't turn out. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, well, it's fascinating because your poetry is so poetic in sort of style and, and shape, I'd say. It feels like you... Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, you approach your nonfiction writing, your prose writing, like like you would have, like a poet would, uh, which mm -hmm. is fascinating. And then, of course, you're a poet too. So how did how did you end up, you know, writing one versus the other? Like, what what made you? I assume you got into because your book you have more books than nonfiction that you got into nonfiction first. But how did you yeah. discover that you were sort of also maybe a poet at heart? I would say. Um. Well, I started out as an essayist because I don't have an MFA or any sort of degree in writing, and I wanted to build a resume, so I started writing essay, which in itself is usually shorter. Um, and I liked writing short and tight. And people who read my first book, So Many Africas, often said, oh, you're so poetic. And I grew up reading and loving to read poetry and hearing the King James Bible and a lot of poetic type um, the old classics, I love to read them. And I think it just, you build this rhythm into your soul, into your vocabulary. And um, so, yeah, people kept telling me, oh, you're so poetic. And I have one of the women in my writer's group is a well-published poet. And I thought when this book came out, I didn't have the breath to write um, big things. And I thought, oh, I'll, work, I'll work on some poetry. So that's yeah. how it started. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah, Nate Jacob here says, I can't believe that wasn't a poem, referring to the last passage. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that's you. how the book reads. It reads like poems, um, mm -hmm. you know, woven together, which is fascinating. But let's hear some actual poems of yours. Um, okay. Um, what do you want to read first? Because uh, we, we have a few here. Well... Do you want me to read the one that you published in Rattle yeah, or skip yeah, sure. that one? Yeah, that'd be good. Sure. Okay. So um, this poem is written about when we first moved to Zambia. So I'm 26 years old, living in a country where I can't speak to people very well. And my husband at that point was quite a workaholic. And... Um, 
we both had a lot to learn. <laughs> okay, how much do you weigh? A question asked often by old men or young friends, strangers on the road, how much? I didn't know how to answer. Certainly not a question you'd ask of a woman, not in America where I'd come from, but common in the village where I lived, deep in the land of the Lozi, people of cattle and sand, Zambians living 20 miles from Angola, 20 miles from civil war, tins of cheese from the United Nations, vividly marked not for sale, gathered dust in our nearly empty market, exorbitant prices unobtainable. When a fat campaigning politician came slick to our village, Gaunt mothers with emaciated children gathered and pointed, astonished, admired his weight as if wealth. Look, he can eat and eat more than enough. What to make of a man who is fat? Unimaginable fantasy to anemic mothers whose brittle bone children, bellies swollen by hunger, legs sweeping with sores. What a relief just to eat, not defeated by dry, empty fields, crops gone to dust. Such ease to eat and eat what you please and not stop. How much do you weigh? No longer unseemly, no longer a goad, compassionate, tender, driven by hunger, rendered by need. A question which reconfigured might just as well ask, do you have enough? Have you eaten today? Will you sleep hungry? Tell me, how much do you weigh? And that was how much do you weigh from um, the previous issue of Rattle. Um, mm -hmm. And um, somebody on Facebook had asked um, what kind of things you learned from, from having those cultural experiences. And there's an example of that. Um, can you, can you walk us through how that poem came to be? Like, did you know you had that, um, the, the troubling sense of that question, um, which kind of turns what we would normally hear on its head, um, which is why we published it. I remember still talking about it mm -hmm. at the editorial meeting. Cause it's just, it's something, it's a way you don't think of it. Um, and, and it changes the way you see the world, which is what poetry should be doing. Did you did you think of there being a poem there? Did you just is it something that just like nod at you in the back of your head for a long time before you even thought of it being a poem? Um, and how much did you um, understand about it before the poem came to be? Like, how, how, what was your process in writing that poem? Do you remember? Well, after moving back to the states, it's such a strange relationship with weight, especially that women have. And there's so much in the news and so many like weight loss, blah, blah, blah. And I would sometimes dream about being back in Zambia where there wasn't enough food and people were starving and children were starving. And we would go to villages and um, see that. And, and I just, I think my mind couldn't put the two cultures together and the two realities that here's women I know by name who are friends of mine, who cannot feed their children. And here's women that I know who are my friends who talk about weight in such a different way. And so um, I hadn't written anything about it and it just 
needed to be written about. So it became a poem. Yeah. And, and why yeah. a poem and not an essay? Like, that's the thing I always wonder about people oh. who do multi-genre things. Like, how do you know what one wants to be versus what, what something else wants to be? I think at the at this point in my life, I was reading a lot more poetry. And I was just more interested in trying my hand at it. Mm-hmm. And um, I've written so many essays. And it just felt it wanted to be tighter. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's hear another one. Um, do you want to okay. do um, Don't You Cry? Sure. Okay. Uh, don't You Cry. Um, I wanted to say about this poem that I read just a week ago, a quote from Ada Limon. And she said, great poetry is the place where we come to get the strength to heal. And I would say that also writing poetry, not just reading it, but writing poetry is a place to find strength and a place to heal. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's still a part of me that needs to heal from Zambia. So um, I wrote this, um, we are in that little village and we've been there three years and uh, there's no communication. We don't have telephone. Uh, my husband has the only car. He has a translator. I'm at home a lot, basically keeping us alive, trying to find food and washing clothes by hand. And so, um, don't you cry. (laughs) My husband off again, teaching desolate and desperate farmers, bringing his skills, his dreams of feeding the world, increasing crop production, postponing starvation, traipsing to villages so remote he needed a guide to find them. Lutwe, Sihole, Imenda. Week after week, as weeks, sorry, week after week, as months became years, my husband crisscrossing the Bolozi plain, the dry Litongo soils, Dambos and sands, those large alluvial flats, he knew them all. He and his guide, who spoke five local languages, a team, I was the lost one. They traveled together, cheerfully tethered, Kashimana, Sikongo, Kakula. I slipped into a silence days drowned in stagnant, lonely waters alone. Some days, those muted waters, my only embrace. My husband, so dutiful, so driven. Indelwa, Chumbula, Nguya. Then deep inside, another life touched me with gentle movement. I birthed her, my first child, on a broken metal bed in a cockroach-infested room, cement walls decorated with gray termite mounds. My sweaty hair thrown on a dingy pillowcase, stamped in bold and blocked red letters, Government Republic of Zambia. My firstborn, my bald and beautiful daughter, wet with my blood, wondrously alive, her bright newborn eyes, blue and attentive, fixed onto mine, didn't look away. She held me in a steadfast gaze, our eyes mirrors 
as we found ourselves in each other. An hour later, home snuggled together under a mosquito net, she slept. I traced her every freckle, stroked the tender arch of her tiny foot, my fingers imprinting her profile. I sang a lullaby, all the pretty little horses, welcomed her as she welcomed me, and I sighed in wonder and relief. Hushabye, don't you cry. Yeah, beautiful poem. That was a "Don't You Cry" by Jill Kendall. Um, did Did you have any idea what you were getting into when you left there? Like, did you know how <laughs> how tough it would be? And no. then, and then as a follow up, like, what was it like coming back? I remember um, a friend of mine, Eric Campbell, lived in Indonesia for years, and mm. when he came back. I mean, he was in a remote, you know, remote villages for with a mining company. And when he came back, he was shocked. I remember him and his wife talking about how seeing a Hummer for the first time, like oh. drive down the street was like some kind of um, like they could not believe what they were seeing. It'd be like, um, yeah. you know, like like indigenous people seeing Columbus's ships or something. It just made no sense. Like yeah. that this thing would be driving yeah. through L.A., the size and the, the you know, yeah. and, and then just the the number of things on the shelves, too. I mean, how how was it like how much shock was it to go there and then come back? Well, I wasn't at all prepared for it. I had spent three months in Zambia before I got married, but I was at a um, hospital compound that was primarily staffed with uh, Canadians, British, and American doctors and nurses. And I thought, oh, I can do this. This is great. And then when Johan and I went to Zambia, we were in this way, 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 way remote place. So I was totally unprepared for, I think, the isolation and the inability to speak. I felt like living there six years, I really lost my voice. Because when when you're speaking with very limited vocabulary, you can't say much. And what I found was when I wasn't speaking much, I also stopped thinking. And so there was just this like confusion when I came back. I didn't really understand so many of the things I'd lived with. And then coming home, uh, the first time I went in a grocery store, I went in to get some milk and um, I'd been getting milk from a local man who had a cow and he'd bring it in a dirty plastic bucket with hair in it and it had tuberculosis and we had to filter it through an old t-shirt and then boil it for 20 minutes. And then you walk into a store, just small town, Valley City, North Dakota and chocolate milk, white milk, 1%, 2%, quart, gallon, plastic container. And like I stood and stared and got a headache and I walked out of the store and I didn't have anything because I couldn't choose. Like yeah. it was, it was absolutely overwhelming to come home. Mm-hmm. And yet I was coming home to my culture. Yeah. So it, it makes me very compassionate for people who come here for the first time. And um, it, it, it's just overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, you know, what we can adjust to too. And how long did it take to <laughs> feel like normal again? What it, what did you say? I don't think I still feel like normal. I mean, I'm different. The things that you go through change you. Mm-hmm. And I'm a different person because of all the places I've lived. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, these are great poems. Let's hear another one. Thank you. Okay, sorry. I have to exit this out and find the next one. So um, how many poems do we have time for, maybe, Timothy? Uh, we probably have time for, I'd say, maybe two or three more. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
read this one. It's called Benediction. One of the things that I have been um, writing about that is what I'm going through um, is I was the mother of four children, had kids forever in my house. And then what happens? They grow up and they leave. And um, so I've been writing a little bit, especially about my daughters. So Benediction. She's outgrowing me as once she did within my womb. I remember the feel, the kick of her heel against my ribs as I watched my belly sway. I pressed my palm into her knee, or was it her elbow? She, as if tickled, twisted away. She's outgrowing me as once she did, twirling into ballet without a backward glance. The other girls, so sweet, so silly, pulling her into their slender arms, their brave delight, learning to dance, toes balancing on golden wood. A thousand steps, each one away, embrace the diminishment of role, the only way to survive. Fill my arms with letting go. Would I really want her to stay? Fill myself with her delights, the apartment, the new job, and boyfriend. Fill myself with her dreams and breathe. Then turn on my heel and let myself feel the hurt, no less real than her birth, the leaving, the tearing, the pain. Breathe as I reel, breathe as in labor. Imagine the joy after the bruising, swelling, blood losing, opened by tremor and time, stretched and effaced, feeling erased. Breathe as she exits my sphere, as I disappear, while she cavalier skips out onto her own. Raise a faltering hand, empty palm forward, uplifted, lofted, a mother's benediction, all that remains. And that was uh, Benediction, another poem by Jill Kendall. Um, you, you mentioned that you um, started writing when you were 40 and you mm-hmm. haven't, don't have an MFA. So was there any challenge about like, like feeling confident enough to put yourself out there? Like what was your progression like from having, I mean, this is a beautiful hardcover book um, and, and your poems are wonderful. How much of a, a transition did it take? How, how much struggle did it take to get there? Was it something that you it, had to... It wasn't. Yeah, it, it was wasn't. never a struggle. I just, I have always journaled, written, just um, something in me. I love words. I love language. And I uh, just, I started writing when my four kids were at home and I got up at five every morning and wrote from five until seven and then my day was full of kids so it it, i don't know something there it's um i had to write yeah Yeah. and and why do you think that is like what what do you think compels you to is it the the process of of interrogating yourself and exploring your own Mm -hmm. memories or is it sharing it with other people more what do you say It, it starts with interrogating myself and trying to understand things and i think it also comes from a deep love of language Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, let's hear another poem. I think we, we do have time for two more, I think. So let's do, okay. uh, let's do another. I will, I will do um, how to love a daughter. That's the last one about daughters. And then I'll do one on my brain injury. Okay. <laughs> so 
Um, Mary Oliver said in Blackwater Woods that to live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. And I was always very good at the first two, <laughs> loving what is mortal and holding it like my life depended on it. But when it came to letting go, like that was, <laughs> that's what I'm writing about. Yeah, that's so tough um, I just, I wasn't very good at that part. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote this to explore kind of the ephemeral nature of a mother's love. How to love a daughter. Like the memory of a dream as you wake. Like a feather blown kiss on the wind. Like hummingbird flight, Cassiopeia at night. Like a foal, like a fawn. Like the crowning of dawn. Like scent after the rain. Yeah, beautiful poem, How to Love a Daughter. Yeah, thanks for sharing that one. Yeah. And then you, you mentioned um, the traumatic brain injury. So can you tell us what happened and, and what that experience was like? Yeah, uh, two years ago, I went in for some surgery that I needed, and the surgery went well and was successful. And a couple hours afterwards, I threw some blood clots, hmm. and they went up to my brain oh, and wow. locked the spinal uh, spinal fluid. So they had to drill some holes in my head. And um, I went into surgery, a very healthy 66-year-old, mm -hmm. uh, running, doing yoga, biking. Um, and I came out in a wheelchair with about three months of very little memory of what happened oh, after wow. that. So yeah. I spent the past two years um, relearning how to walk and I'm running again, relearning how to drive, doing lots of vision therapy for my eyes. And anyway, it's been a long, hard past two years. And, and right in the middle of that, my book was published. So um, I actually signed my contract for my book on my 66th birthday. And oh, wow. um, then it took one year to come out. So in the midst of all of that, I was also doing the therapy and kind of um, coming back to myself. And I don't know why I don't remember writing this poem, mm -hmm. but I remember wanting to try to explain what was going on so that I could look back and remember what I was going through. Yeah. Did, did you have any problems with um, like, like language or, or writing? I, I remember we talked to um, Robin Cost Lewis um, who had mm -hmm. a brain injury like that from a fall <clears throat> and she had to sort of re like, like relearn the way that she approached poems, which was really interesting. Did, did, did that not affect that area? Well, I didn't read for about three months and mm -hmm. I wasn't writing for about that length of time. Yeah. Um, so it came back slowly, but I think most of that was uh, eye work that I needed to have done more than cognitive work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My painting is brighter and um, <laughs> a little more uh, abstract than it used to be. Oh, so that's interesting. Maybe that's yeah. part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this poem is called No Convenient Solution lightheaded or dizzy. When people ask, these are the words I use, but neither explains how it feels inside this post-surgical head of mine, wobbly, precarious, uneven, 
a surgical procedure on blood vessels near my ear, followed by a rare complication and brain injury. Awake, my head floats above me, not attached. I pitch forward when I walk or drift sideways like I'm drinking. My shins feel tilted. I'm discombobulated yet need to explain this new life. My eyes constantly jerk. I see double. Even when I close my eyes, my brain shakes and shakes. Walking joggles my thinking. Looking down makes me queasy. Up is no better. Yoga belonged in my life before surgery, along with hiking, biking, spontaneous movement, and driving. Nothing is easy anymore. When I move my arms, my head feels like it's sloshing around. I can't tell one toe from another. They're just one big foot blob. I play games I used to play with my children, trying to differentiate body parts that feel lost. This little piggy went to market, head and shoulders, knees and toes. My limbs don't send correct signals, or maybe the signals are misinterpreted, or maybe my mind isn't receiving them at all. There's a fault in the neurons disrupting my brain-body connection. Split apart from myself, I'm trapped in a stranger's body. I see specialist after specialist until I'm tired of them all. The latest one says, there is no convenient solution. I want to scream at him at life, at the callous universe. I don't care if it's convenient or not. I only want to find a way out, out of this quaking abyss. Interesting. And you don't remember writing that poem. <laughs> it's not bizarre. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. I have, I have very few memories of the hospital or that mm-hmm. first first probably three, four months after my injury. Yeah, and, and how has it gone since then? Do you feel like you're almost fully recovered or is it still struggling um, with certain things? You know, I don't think I'll ever be the same person because mm-hmm. I have different connections yeah. and it's harder work. And so I, I sleep more. I'm tired more. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe I can do 80% of the things I used to do. Uh Uh, Travel is the most difficult because my perception right now is that my brain is always shaking just Mm -hmm. a little inside and it's, it's very wearing. So um, if you add that shake to the movement of a car, it's just a little too much. I yeah, I can, uh, my husband and I will go on vacations. We can drive two hours or three. Mm-hmm. Our longest vacation in um, the past two years, we went to visit our son and he lives five hours away from us. So that was like a big, really big thrill to yeah. <laughs> make it that far. Yeah. So it's different, you know, being a woman who's traveled all over the world to suddenly being like, oh, now I'm here. Mm-hmm. And and what have you, like, like what does that perspective add to, to just being human that, you know, something like that can yeah. happen and, and change, you know, rewire your, the way your brain functions. Does that yeah. make you think about how other people behave and, and things like that in a different way? 
yeah, it gives me a lot of compassion um, for people maybe who have autism or, or you know are neurodivergent and see the world differently. And um, we don't know what's going on inside people. I mean, people look at me and they say, "Oh, you look great." I, you know, I heard that since my first memory after surgery. Wow, you look great, and I'd be like. Mm-hmm. You can see the inside. So yeah. I think, yeah, it it um, also teaches humility. Mm-hmm. Um, and my husband and I have learned a great love for each other in a new way. He's mm-hmm. he's just been so good to me. And um, I just love him for that. Uh, yeah, that's really yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you have? Like, what are your plans next as a writer? Do you do you focus want to focus more on poetry? Um, or do you have another memoir in you, or, or what do you what do you want to focus on? What well, are you working on? My book just came out, mm-hmm. so usually I think it's fairly common for a memoirist when a book comes out to spend about a year talking about it, writing companion pieces. So I'm writing um, essays again and. Um, op-eds and just trying to get some interest for the book Mm -hmm. and i find um more and more that i'm drawn to north dakota and and the places i grew up in and my heritage and what stories do i want to leave for my grandchildren so i'm starting to think about writing and researching about my grandparents who were homesteaders in north dakota Mm -hmm. i'm very interested in that right now and i have a dear friend who is ojibwe and so we have are having discussions on, you know, your ancestors stole my land and what it means to be a person of a land that wasn't ours. And yet my grandparents um, escaped from German Russia, which is now actually they came from the Ukraine is what we call it now. And what kind of life did they have and what did they know and where does the government, you know, um, come into that in deceiving both groups of peoples? Yeah, so, yeah, that sounds yeah. fascinating. Definitely a great topic for another book. And I'm so glad mm-hmm. that we'll have that eventually. Um, Jill, <laughs> thanks so much for being a guest. It was really fascinating listening to your your life story through this memoir, The Clean Daughter, and then your poems too. Um, really wonderful. And I should say that there's a link in the show notes. Jill is offering... Um, if I can see it, it is a 10% off if you go to her website and use the um, um, code uh, plus free shipping now through October 3rd, um, 10% off anything on the website and free shipping with the code rattle all in caps. So go to jillkendell.com. That's J I L L K N D E L.com. Um, and Jill, thanks so much for being a guest. It's really been a pleasure talking to you and exploring you. this book with you. It's, it's been great. And, and through poetry too. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much. Take care. Okay, you too. Okay, bye. Night. Night. It was Jill Kandel. Once again, jillkandel.com, J-I-L-L-K-A-N-D-E-L. So do uh, pick up a copy of her book and, or her previous books about her time in Africa as well. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our um, open lines. So here is how the open lines work. Uh, first, email your poem to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. Um, and then I can show it on the screen like I was showing Jill's poems and, and writing when she was reading. Um, and then find the Zoom link here, which I'm about to deploy. Zoom will be in um, 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 both on Facebook and YouTube. I will put in the Zoom link. 
uh, painting the message to the top. Just join us if you, only if you'd like to share a poem, though. Only if you'd like to share a poem. Um, and then you can join and share the poem and come back to the regular feed. If you don't want to share a poem, though, and just want to enjoy other people's poems, stay exactly right where you are and just enjoy listening on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter. But if you would like to join, please do. So um, I see people joining in right now. I'm going to take a quick break, and I will be right back in just a moment with uh, more poetry. Thanks a lot, and I will see you in just a minute. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Um, the prompt for this week, which I hadn't mentioned yet, was to write a poem about a historical figure most people don't know. And that was the prompt last week uh, given by um, last week's guest, Jesse Randall, because she had that book, if you remember. Um, what book called? It was called um, the... I can't remember. Science, Women in Science was the topic of the book. And um, so that was her prompt, to write a poem like she was about a historical figure in the uh, first person, if you'd like or not. I wrote a quick poem, um, and I wanted this to be a much longer poem. And I think it deserves like a long kind of Kirby-esque braid poem, I think. Because um, there's so many much fascinating things about this. But I wrote about J. Harlan Bretz, who was the scientist who discovered um, or, or chronicled the Missoula floods. And the fascinating thing about him, this was um, around t- 1920 or so, is that at the time, um, the first geologists were all um, sort of creationists trying to prove that um, um, the biblical floods were real. And so that's where sort of geology grew from. And then the second generation of scientists were all more legitimate scientists, you could say. And they were so against the idea of any kind of flood um, that they came up with this um, sort of gradualist model where like everything that happened um, to create the environment around us has to be a kind of gradual um, incremental change over millions of years and nothing could happen in a sudden catastrophe. So when Harlan Bretz was studying um, the, um, um, the area, the, the badlands of, um, uh, around the uh, eastern Washington area, um, he saw the, the evidence of a huge flood that had happened. And for, for 40, 50 years, um, the scientific community um, ignored him. And finally, at age 96, he won the Pendleton Award for um, the best geologist and um, accepted his award just before his death. And so here's a quick poem about J. Harlan Bretz. Um, it starts out with a great quote that I just love. This is um, from Max Planck, which... Um, a really important quote to keep in mind. He says, science advances one funeral at a time. That was Max Planck, like writing around the same time, actually, as, as Harlan Bretz was uh, f- struggling to get the uh, geology community to listen to him, despite these mountains of evidence he was finding for um, what had happened then around 12,000 years ago in the uh, Pacific Northwest. So here's my J. Harlan Bretz poem. A hundred years to fill... Two days to fully drain, his heart was glacial till, a pothole on the plain. All his peers contend what's biblical was wrong, but when it's right and ended, it's worth a little song. So they tapped his shoulder, and to his son he said, there's no one to gloat over, my enemies are dead. And that's actually a quote, that's what he said when he accepted his award, that um, he wished (laughs) that the people who disagree with him were still alive. So I just always loved uh, J. Harlan Bretz. And I thought that would be a little poem, but maybe I'll write a longer poem about him later when I have more time and I'm not coaching Little League for four days a week. Um, but let's go to, uh, let's see what your poems are. And we'll go just in order. And Stephen Croft is up first. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? Hey, Tim. Um, I'm going to take us back to medieval England. Um, this is a poem about the green children of Woolpit. 
The green children of Woolpit were two children reportedly found abandoned in 12th century England in the village of Woolpit, County Suffolk. Their story is recorded in two medieval English chronicles, the Historia Rerum Anglicarum and the Chronicon Anglicanum. In the first chronicle, the children were found in a wolf's pit, that is a deep trench dug by the villagers to trap scavenging wolves in the area, which at the time gave the town its now archaic sounding name. In the second chronicle, they were found in a cave mouth the children wore clothes of unknown design and fabric, spoke an unknown language, and most amazingly had green skin. The children starving would eat no food offered until they saw raw beans, which they devoured. Uh, this would have been hard in first person, but uh, I did come up with the language for them. And uh, what I did was think of an exotic people I thought of the Yazidi people in in the mountains in uh, Iran and Iraq and uh, looked up Yazidi poetry, mm-hmm. took words from it to make their language, which would be nonsense to the Yazidi or anybody else. Interesting. This is the green children of Woolpit. In the village of Woolpit in the county of Suffolk, in the time of the harvest on a day of good cheer, Two children found wandering, skins green as young cabbage, were stopped by some villagers. And what did they hear? Zu Mariki Sedana asked the girl. Ev Baragi Dikit, the boy did say. A woman asked, from where did you come? Show us the way. The children did nothing but repeat a strange tongue, palms to their eyes to block out the sun. In the village, they ate nothing, neither meat, porridge, nor bread, until in a thatched roof house, beans were shelled where they lay. Up jumped the girl who came running, and the boy raised his head up. They ate raw beans faster than the women could shell them that day. Taken by the local lord to his manor, the boy pined and faded. The young girl learned English did not die like her sibling. Her story made a fabric spun out of fable. In a land with no sun, both tended sheep when sweet bells they heard ringing. They followed the sounds to a cave mouth and through the caverns to England. The story is written in the Historia Rerum Anglicarum, how the girl left the land of a green king to be subject of King Stephen, so this tale of orphans goes. Today, Woolpit Village has them as emblem. Oh, Stephen Crow, that was a fascinating story. I had never heard, which was the prompt of the Woolpit. Very, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, yeah, that was uh, Stephen Croft with uh, the Green Children of Woolpit fascinating background let's see what everybody else says I'm, I'm excited to hear the different stories that we get to hear that, that we haven't heard before and let's go to carla schwartz next hi hi i'm so happy to be here hey carla yeah we're happy to have you too so what do you have for us today so i have i'm just amazed when i heard uh, jill tell the story of her father-in-law sounds very much like the story of the piece that i'm going to read to you i don't know if i'll call it a poem either 
And um, what I wrote about it was um, this prompt inspired me to write this poem about a now historical figure who is quite unknown. It would be almost impossible to find compassion in the voice of no one you had ever heard of, and I didn't want to spew invective. Rather, I chose to relay the facts of his life as in, a, in as poetic a manner as I could. And this is called, No One You Have Ever Heard Of A Life. No one you ever heard of was born in 1925. No one you ever heard of worked the fields of a Luxembourg farm to avoid conscription in the Hitler Youth. No one you ever heard of was confronted by two stranded and hungry American airmen who, seeking safety, had walked for days after their plane had crashed. No one you ever heard of, a kind teen at the time, offered them bread and cheese. After the war, no one you ever heard of studied engineering at ETH in Zurich. In a few years, one of those rescued soldiers would sponsor no one you ever heard of to immigrate to the United States and find work as an engineer. A few years later, his mother would set him up to meet a woman from Luxembourg at a family wedding. No one you had ever heard of would marry this woman a few weeks after they met. No one you ever, you've ever heard of would never tell you they had three children and one of them died in his teens. No one you ever heard of worked for Bell Telephone Laboratories. No one you ever heard of who helped lay the transatlantic telephony cable in the 60s designed the transmission repeaters connected every 20 miles. Repeaters that included special transistors to withstand the underwater pressure over time. Who could have predicted fiber optics would render the transatlantic cable obsolete? No one you ever heard of registered patents under his name. No one you ever heard of didn't like people, so refused promotions to manager. No one you ever heard of took the, buoyant, the buyout and the pension to retire in his 50s. Would anyone have ever predicted he'd live more than 40 years on that pension? No one you ever heard of didn't trust people, so designed and built his retirement home, a five-story mansion with an elevator on a hilltop in rural Virginia. And because they were married and he built her a pool to keep the peace and to leave behind the wrenching, wrenching memory of where their son died, the wife of no one you ever heard of went along with him. No one you ever heard of hardly left his property after that, although his wife maintained a rich social life, the garden club, yoga classes, and meeting friends near and far. No one you ever heard of never stopped learning about technology. No one you ever heard of sped down his driveway on his Segway every morning to get the mail. After his wife died, no one you ever heard of filled in the pool and taught himself to cook, not just the basics, sous vide and other techniques. No one you ever heard of stride for the perfect bechamel sauce. No one you ever heard of was disappointed with, the, with his remaining family. No one you ever heard of read three newspapers every day but never walked out 
to watch the sunset. No one you ever heard of drank a glass of beer with lunch every day and at least one glass of wine with dinner. In his 90s, no one you ever heard of began to lose his sight and hearing, but never went to a doctor. No one you ever heard of never stopped inventing, even at 98, until his last invention, a control mechanism to set to, set to automatically trigger the guns aimed at his hard head and heart. Only half a bottle of champagne left on the table. Wow, that was quite a character sketch story carla great great thanks so much for sharing that yeah wow that was impressive it's, yeah it's, it's wrenching for me i'm sorry yeah but yeah thank sure. you mm -hmm. thank you yeah thanks so much for sharing that with us it was just a great great moving story and then and then the turn at the end i i was shocked yeah thanks so much for sharing it thank, okay right take yeah. care good night everybody okay, good night carla it's carla shorts with no one you've ever heard of and i love that refrain too the no one you've ever heard of repeating over and over again. Um, let's go to Sharon Ferrante next. On you? Yeah. Hey, Sharon. How are you doing tonight? Okay. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, it's a good night of poetry, as it tends to be. <laughs> yes, it is. Jill, thank you very much for doing that interview. She was wonderful. I have a prompt poem. Mm -hmm. I picked... Uh, it's very short. Uh-huh. I, I picked Mary Anning, a British fossil collector, mm -hmm. 1799-1847. Her discovery at 12 years old, the plesiosaur skeleton, the fish lizard, went unrecognized because she was a girl. So I thought, I just thought that was so fascinating. It was really, you know, interesting. And I have just a little small poem. I am no Darwin. I'm just Mary wanting to dig under a fallen fig dismissed. A girl can't have fame. My name in your house, a wish. But I found the fossil, the lizard. Bound to the fish. Oh, beautiful short poem. I love those internal rhymes. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sharon. Yeah, I don't know how I did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked. I am no Darwin. Yeah, that was great. I loved it. it. Really yeah. interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm just loving hearing these stories of uh, you know people I had never heard of. Mary Anning. That's another one I've never yeah. heard of. So yeah, yeah. A British, a British fossil collector. It was mm -hmm. so interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for passing along, so we could all learn from it, um, and with a cool yeah. poem too. Thank you. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Thank you. Um, next up, we'll do Nate Jacob. Hey, good evening. Hey, Nate. How are you doing tonight? I'm great. I, uh, I went with a prompt poem. Excellent. Okay, so who'd you get? About a, an infamous, uh -huh. which is more than famous, <laughs> um, character from our history, Gary Thwerk, I think you said, Nate, call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is credited with being the first person ever to send a spam email. Oh, that, yeah, that dubious distinction. Ouch. <laughs> it's a terrible thing, it but uh, I, I, I'm sure he got what he deserved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Renown. Uh, it's called Loneliness in the Time of Spam, a sonnet, with apologies to Elizabeth 
uh, excuse me, with apologies to Emily Barrett Browning. I stole her opening line and then <laughs> it. Uh, with other apologies to Gabrielle Garcia Marquez for the title, which I also tweaked, and with no apologies at all to Gary Thorpe. <laughs> That's great. How do I need these? Let me count the ways. I need spam and junk when days have darkened, telling me, get up, ready, get started. Some even shout, you have only three days. Major financial compensation may be available. This isn't invented. You deserve the best. You must plan ahead. Act now. You can save on discount Tuesdays. I'm desperate in need. Damn this loneliness. I click with passion. They'll do whatever. You may be entitled to passion, zest. It's here. Focus on what really matters. But my friend repeats, you deserve the best. Of course, I know this deal can't last forever. Oh, that was very fun. Yeah, that and was... everything in uh, everything in italics there is literally pulled from my junk email. <laughs> Excellent. Loneliness in the time of spam. That's uh, very fascinating. And like Jesse Randall's book, it makes me want to look up more about this uh, Gary Thwork guy. Since yeah, 1978. Yeah. So how is like on listservs or something? Very fascinating. Yeah. To 400 prospects yeah. on ARPANET. Yeah. Very interesting. Um. And $13 million in sales. That is just fascinating. Thanks so much for sharing that and, and enlightening me because that was uh, something I did not know. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Okay, next up, uh, let's go to Brent Stauffer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Brent. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. It's, it's, uh, it's been uh, a really fun night. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah, for sure. So what do you have? Uh, what do you got for us? Well, I've, uh, I've I've done something I've never done before, <clears throat> which is to send in an unfinished poem. Oh, interesting. So even though it's not finished, I wanted to talk about this guy so bad that I figured I would go ahead and, and uh, zoom in and share a little bit of what I've learned about this guy. Yeah, go ahead. I'd love to hear it. This guy whose name is Samuel Coleridge Taylor. And that is not dyslexia or a spoonerism or anything like that. It's, it's, it's his name. It's, his dad's last name was Taylor, and his mom was a big fan of the romantic poet and named him thusly. Huh. And um, during his time, he was a composer at the turn of the last century. And um, at his time, he was the biggest composer around London hmm. And in classical music world, generally, um, he was much bigger than, say, Edward Elgar, who wrote Pop and Circumstance and, and the cello concerto and all those other things. Mm -hmm. But um, his dad was uh, from Sierra Leone, was uh, an, a black man who uh, 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 was descended from freed American uh, slaves mm -hmm. um, who were freed after the Revolutionary War and sent off to, or they went to Nova Scotia, um, and then they went to Sierra Leone, which was established as a colony for freed blacks. Mm -hmm. And um, and he was over there in London and um, got together with a, a a British lady, a white person and they gave birth to him and then he um 
uh, exhibited talent at an early age, and they sent him to the conservatory. And despite uh, the obvious uh, and and you know the obstacles that were in his in his way, he quickly became um, uh, not only like critically acclaimed, but super popular uh-huh. too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And um, his 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 most popular piece was. Uh, based on the song of Hiawatha by uh, Longfellow, and, um, and and I mean it was big. It was really big. Uh, he came to America, did some uh, tours of America with this piece, and um, was greeted at the White House by Theodore Roosevelt and uh, met W D W E B Du Bois mm-hmm. and. He was uh, at the first Pan-African Congress in London. Anyway, he was an amazing big name. Yeah, it sounds like it, um, for sure. Um, that people just don't uh, know about these days, or at least a lot of people don't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I think that's probably enough yeah, well, that, that's fascinating. I've never, uh, I've never heard of him myself. So let's hear hear the poem that the unfinished poem. Uh, maybe yeah, the first time a self proclaimed unfinished poem has appeared. So let's hear. But it's it. not even. It's not even. And I would like to add before I read it that I realized that Song of Hiawatha is problematic in in that it's uh, it's appropriation in a sense, and it's also like wildly inaccurate in mm-hmm. its uh, depiction of, uh, I think, uh, Jill said it, I think it's o- Ojibwa, Ojibwe. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, it's uh, Longfellow was friends with an Ojibwe uh, chief. And, um, and he claimed that the high song of Hiawatha was, was up and up mm-hmm. uh, oh, really? mm-hmm. in uh, fairy tales. But a lot of it was just made up by him. Anyway, <laughs> when, when as the poem progresses in my mind, I will deal with that aspect gotcha. of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So okay. anyway, um, this is Song of Coleridge Taylor, unfinished. And there's a hyphen in between Coleridge and Taylor, and that's due to a printer stuck it in there by accident. <laughs> And he just adopted it later. It's not actually a compound hmm. name. Interesting. Just, Sounds an interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, so, Song of Cal- Coleridge Taylor. <clears throat> Across the Croydon railroad tracks, downwind from the slaughterhouse, while his father sailed back to Africa. 15 years before the 20th century was unleashed, he was born Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Samuel Coleridge Taylor was named both for the poet and his dad, though it was Longfellow his mother read to him every night, and the tales of Hiawatha that sang his soul awake until he himself burned with song. Dunbar and Du Bois would sing the African Mahler's praises soon very interesting well leave us wanting more for sure because that's uh <laughs> looking forward to seeing the rest at some point yeah yeah i'm gonna work on it I, I i would have gotten along farther but i had to take a quick break and watch that uh spacecraft 
smash into that asteroid. Oh man, I forgot about that. I haven't seen that. Yeah, at all. it was. Yeah, it was live, and you could see oh. the asteroid coming up and coming up. Oh, I want to watch bigger, that video. <laughs> and then the and then the video cuts out because it smashed into it. Oh, that is because cool. they're trying. They're trying to see if we can avert a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, a planet killing asteroid in the future. Yeah. So well, hopefully, I, hopefully I, they can figure it out because we, we could use that. <laughs> yeah, it's my intention to write a poem about that and send it in for post response. Very cool. Well, I look forward to that I, too. Thanks I'm, so much. I, I, okay, thanks, Tim. See you yeah, all later. Thanks so much, Brent. All right, bye. Yeah, that was Brent Stoffer with a song of Coleridge Taylor. Fascinating character there. Um, and let's go to uh, Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing tonight? Good. Uh, uh, the prompt poems have been so uh, well. First of all, the interview with Jill was wonderful. I loved her reading voice and her reading presence. Yeah, for sure. It's straight to the from the heart. Remind me a lot of um, Rachel Malalu, you know, telling stories that matter in a very direct way, you know, and very insightfully, you know, without a lot of frills. I loved it. Yeah, and and her material matched her reading voice. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. I love the love the prompt poems, and it has lit a fire underneath me to get back to writing prompt poems. I've been writing, I've been sort of obsessed with news poems mm-hmm. and have sent you probably more than, <laughs> more than my fair share. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, um, but uh, I'm going to read one of those tonight. I, I sent it in as an email um, okay. last night as rain beat against the glass. Okay, here we go. Yep. I got it up. Okay. And just, Briefly, it's uh, one of those rare years where the uh, um, equinox, uh, the weather that swept in the moment of the equinox matched the description of an equinox. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was autumnal weather from summer weather on the autumnal equinox. Yeah, so, perfect. Yeah. Um, which is unusual. Um, so it's villanellish ish Ish. <laughs> Last night as rain beat against the glass. Last night as rain beat against the glass, I lay in bed and listened for a hint of death. Will this be how my final leaving goes? Me, afraid to close my eyes, that I might miss the rain that rattles the panes, the rough hand, I'm sorry, the wind that rattles the panes, the rough hand of the rain that beats against the glass, the seasons turn. I don't wish to miss out on the animate trees, the sudden fall of leaves. Will this be how my final leaving goes, that I won't wake to find all that's fallen at my feet? It's only sleep I crave and tussle with each night as rain against the glass, my feet struggling with tangled sheets, my aged hips so pained they protest the too hard bed. Will this be how my final leaving goes? To the sound of autumn opening the door to something dark, a shivering, a catch in my chest. Last night, as the rain beat against the glass, I wondered, will this be how my final leaving goes? Yeah, excellent poem. Last night is rain beat against the glass. Great as always, Dick. Always a pleasure hearing your your poems. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Yeah, Goodbye. thanks so much. Yeah, take care. That was uh, Richard Westheimer with Last Night as Rain Beat Against the Glass. And last but not least on the Zoom is Jennifer Elise Wang. Hey, Jen, how you doing tonight? Hey, I'm good. 
We got a cat cameo. I always love the cat yeah, cameo. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> popped up. Uh, so yeah. what do you have to share? Um, so I, I got really excited with the prompt because yeah, I, I, I love learning yeah. about different figures. And this one, uh, I learned about them randomly. I think it was through just Twitter, mm-hmm. <laughs> like queer Twitter. And so uh, I decided to write about the public universal friend who was a preacher around the time of the American Revolution. Oh, and they were born female, but um, fell ill and almost died. And then when they got better, kind of miraculously, they said, um, Jemima is dead. I'm someone different. And so they wound up believing that they were a prophet. And they had some pretty progressive ideas, like so progressive that even the Quakers huh. didn't really like them. So they they kind of like they preached abolition and accepted different people from congregations and uh just yeah had dressed in a masculine manner but still had like long hair and a feminine voice so yeah this was just a super interesting person i happened to come across and wanted to write about yeah that's fascinating i never heard of this this either so go ahead okay it's called resurrection of the public universal friend trans and non-binary were not labels you knew back then However, you buried your birth name and threw away your gender, even though writers continue to unearth that dead name and insist the public universal friend is a woman, or worse, a charlatan. Undermining dogma and norms brought critics indeed, but you focused on love and universal salvation, drawing all creeds and color to your flock. Iconoclast in the most accepting ways, Christ would have approved of your charity. Universal Friends was the first religious community founded by an American, yet no one brings it up for women and non-binary folks are never included in our history books. Venerating God over a husband, yet allowing marriage to happen, equality in the form of abolition and peaceful sharing of land, and repentance you did preach. Salvation could come for us all in the upcoming apocalypse if we followed you. Your detractors said those were lies, but they were the ones who threw the rocks. Frocked in masculine garb, yet hair long like a lady's, resurrected during a political revolution, inspiring a couple of other women to discard their gender, escaping a mob on horseback. You were the necessary glue that held your friends together and the movement died when you didn't rise. But here I resurrect your spirit. Yeah, that is very cool. That is the kind of story that should be a movie. That's very cinematic. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, the mob thing was at least according to the Wikipedia, like uh-huh. there, multiple times people tried to get them arrested or just, kind of try to evict them from different places. Mm-hmm. And there was a mob at one point and they escaped on horseback since wow. they were really good at writing. <laughs> yeah, very fascinating. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Janet. It's always, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure hearing your work. And uh, and uh, this is a fun prompt for learning about yeah. people I hadn't heard of. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, thank you. Yep, take care. Is that Jennifer Elise Wang with Resurrection of the Public Universal Friend. Um, let's see. What else do we have that I can share here? Ted Guevara and Susan Talley have poems. Um, Jayanthi Rangan is here, but the audio is not connecting. Um, Jayanthi, so if uh, I'll give it a second before I leave, we'll, we'll look at another poem. We'll look at Ted's poem or something before I um, I do that. This is uh, let's look at. So last week Clayton Clark sent a poem, um, and we didn't get to it because remember last week we had a really really packed show, um, and we ran completely ran out of time. This week we have a lot more time, and so Clayton Clark's poem is here. This is from last week's prompt. What was last week's prompt? Do you, does anybody remember? <laughs> I don't remember. Um, but uh, it's a oh no, it's not last week's prompt. It's a poet's response submission. So he says you can call it a par baked poem. So let's see what this is. This is this or that. 
yellow bird. And this is Clayton Clark. Let's see. This or that yellow bird. Migrants are flying all around the skies and sanctuary's name. Real people, pawns in a game with no concern. One side decides whose step to drop the suffering people on. Some days I can't believe this living life. How care and concern don't top a master plan. The fists in charge that thrive on trouble and strife. I have to believe we'll lose to an open hand. Today I look up from this game of pain and sorrow, pulled by some sweet Twitter tweets. Outside a small delight alights on a plant, an American warbler kisses a leaf on the bird of paradise and calls a song of thanks in response to the open sky, for we all cannot see here before our eyes. Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. And sorry we didn't get to it last week, but I'm glad we got to it today, Clayton. So this is a poem from um, Michelle um, Cicilline, Michelle Cicilline. Um, and she says this for the open mic. Um, before Joey Horjo, Emily Dickinson, and Sappho, there was an Ed Hudwana. I hope to share this poem about the world's first poet at the upcoming Rattlecast open mic. So uh, Michelle can't be here, but I'll read this for her, Michelle. Um, here we go. This is um, Ed Hudwana. Hopefully I'm saying pronouncing that right. But let's see. This is, um, this is the poem. Ornament of Heaven. I, who am I among living creatures? Authority wakes you again and again. Your bed comes undone by a decorated man who likes to call himself an authority. On who counts as, as author, the term never changed to authoress, so title and status continually belong to the authority. And a story is said by some one except for when someone is a triple threat. Then it was said by no one without authority. So they burn the poet's tree if they can't burn the witch, but she rises, cool phoenix, still princess in cross-fired authority. And who am I, woman of privilege and comfort and pseudo-power, reading like progress and applause for authority on a resume? No relic to be found by some sir-clawing, seeking priestess to break, excavating any remaining authority. And rewriting her story... Scraped scenes from stone, silhouette unsexed, poetess without publisher, author sans authority. And uh, there's a note for the poem. Um, and and Hedwana is the world's first known author. She lived in ancient Mesopotamia during the 23rd century BCE. She was the priestess daughter or princess daughter of Sargon the Great, high priestess to the moon deity Nana Swen, and writer of the temple poetry about Inanna the Sumerian goddess of love and war. There is an ongoing debate around Enhedwana's authorship, led primarily by men. Um, let's see, we'll read Ted Guevara's poem. Hang on a second, let's read Ted Guevara's poem really quick. This is another, um, um, this is a, for a prompt for this week. Um, and Nellie Bly was a 19th century reporter who exposed the cruelty of treatment in a women's asylum or any mental hospital then, by posing as a patient herself. And so here's a picture of um, Nellie Bly, another, another person I've never heard of. Very, very fascinating. Here we go. This is Nellie Bly. And here is uh, Ted's poem uh, by Nellie Bly. What a mysterious thing madness is. 
I have watched patients whose lips are forever sealed in a perpetual silence. They live, breathe, eat. The human form is there, but that something which the body can live without, which cannot exist without the body, was missing. I got out my pen and pad and report this to the public. My editor says it can't be. Are you mad? Therefore, I got out my soul and reported that. Still, manly, he would not award belief. So I wore this perpetual silence, the insanity of it all. It was then that the world gasped, and he, may, he, my editor of the Modern Times, went on about his business. Very interesting. Yeah, great story again. Nellie Bly, another thing I've never heard of. I'm, I'm loving learning. I love learning. I always do. Thanks for sharing that. Ted, another poem about... Um, um, let's see. And here is a poem. Who is this? This is Mary Ann Abdo. Um, and this poem is um, A Bridge Over the East River. Um, this is the poem for the prompt today, a bridge over the East River. So let's see, uh, let's see what this is. Um, again, by Mary Ann Abdo. A bridge over the East River. While few people remember my name, history has recorded my contribution to this engineering marvel. Being a woman in Victorian society, higher education was unacceptable. A woman's place was behind her husband. A twist of fate granted me the grace of a man's only world entrance having to end to tend to my husband's decompression illness finding my way through the curriculum of engineering mastering this educational maze of steel and stone i a woman assumed the task of chief engineer enduring a decade's worth of snide contractors inspectors politicians reporters sneering in my face it was not until that last year my reputation garnered respect did you know i was the first person to cross the brooklyn bridge in a carriage with my red rooster for good luck, that fate granted, or that feat gained attention to those far and wide, that all my womanly efforts were so monumental. I am Emily Waring Roebling. I am the woman who saved the Brooklyn Bridge. How oh, very interesting there. Thanks so much for sharing that as well. Um, and let's see. We also have here's Nivedita's poem. Um, and Nivita says, um, um, oh, this was last week's poem that we didn't get to, but let's, let's do this one too. Cause we ran out of time last week. So this is, um, oh no, this is this week. Um, I've attempted to write a poem on Lawrence Gordon Tesler, the man who gave us the copy paste command. That's interesting. Not many know of him making him an underrated historical figure. I think he passed away in 2020. Um, and so here, let me download Nivy's audio. We'll play Nivy reading this poem, too, in just a moment. Okay, poem ready to go. Here's Nivy. Take it away, Nivy. Hello. My name is Nivedita, and this is my attempt at the prompt poem for Atlecast. So, the historical figure that I've chosen is Lawrence Gordon Tesla, or Larry Tesla. Uh, I'm pretty sure very few of us have heard of him, but he is the genius behind the copy-paste command that we I know, use so often these days and, you know, like, take for granted. And no one really knows about him, so I thought that I would take this opportunity to sort of dedicate this point. And he passed away, I think, in 2020, if I'm not mistaken. So this is sort of a tribute to Larry Tesla. Cut, copy, paste. We credit Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Berners-Lee. 
But do we ever think of Larry Tesla? But do we ever think of Larry Tesla? We move words around the page trying to see where it best fits, like a collage, a part of a bigger picture, like we try to see where we fit. And we do it so easily, just a click here and a click there, unlike when it comes to us, and there is no such simple solution. We don't have the laborious task of having to retype this here, delete it there, and then retype it here again. But for us, the task is laborious, to move, stay, and test our fit there before moving on again. Much like found poetry, or even copy-paste poetry, we use this command in our daily lives, yet spare no thought to the man behind it all. But now we do. Now we know Larry Tesla. Now we know Larry Tesla. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That was a Nibbity Karthik again with um, um, cut, copy, paste uh, about Larry Tesla. Another, the, the, every time, every one of these people is someone I haven't heard of, which is really fun. So thanks so much for sharing that, Nivy. Always a pleasure. Um, and I think that's going to be the show for today. Let me see. I guess one more time. We'll see if we can get um, um, Jayanti on. And if not, I'll just share the poem. But let me ask, uh, can you unmute? Jayanti? If not, I will just share. I'm just going to share this poem and end the Zoom call. Sorry that it didn't work out this time. Um, but here, this is a this is a Wordle poem. Remember last week, Jessie Randall shared her uh, Wordle poems, that she a, a new form that she invented that she thought would be fun. And um, you take the, the Wordle and the actual word of the Wordle that day and make a poem. So this is Backyard Performers. Everything is a five-letter word, so it fits the Wordle form in the, like, the boxes of the Wordle. So here we go, Backyard Performers. Um, here we go. Backyard Performers. Micro finch, wingy, amaze, acute eagle claws, chick, moves worth Oscar award. Very cool. Three little little poems there. Wonderful um, backyard performers. Um, interesting poem using the wordle form. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jayanthi. That was Jayanthi Rangan again. And now we are going to move on to uh, the Saiku for the week. And here is the Saiku. Very interesting story. This is out of the um, uh, University of San Diego, UC San Diego. And here we go with the story. If you can see that. Um, Tiny swimming robots treat deadly pneumonia in mice. And so even though they call them robots, they're actually like biomolecular machines. They, they take some algae and then they graft on these nanoparticles delivering antibiotics directly into, inside your lungs. They swim around, deliver them right into your lungs, straight into the bacteria if you have a pneumonia infection, um, killing it much more effectively than just giving your whole body. Like if you eat, you know, if you think about it, if you take a pill that's um, antibiotics, your whole body is like showered in antibiotics just to get a little bit of it to your lungs. But with this new technology, they can graft on using these little nanoparticles, um, the antibiotics right on this sort of algae that they're using to swim around. And the motion of the algae um, lets it move around inside your lungs, which is a, weird to think about. But it all, it's all biodegradable and breaks down. 
and um, is much more effective at delivering antibiotics and, and will probably save many lives. It saved in this in this study, it saved all of the um, mice in the uh, in the treatment group, while all the mice in the control group died from the pneumonia. So it's an amazing miracle, miraculous kind of um, breakthrough. And here is the Psyku based on that. Learning what tiny swimming robots do the backstroke. Learning what tiny swimming robots do the backstroke. That is your Psyku for this week. And that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Been a lot of fun um, listening to Jill Kendall's um, experiences. Remember, you go to jillkendall.com for 10% off her book for the next week by uh, October 3rd. Um, the Clean Daughter is her memoir. She's also um, wonderful poems that she shared as well. Um, now, next week's guest on the Rattlecast, you already know who it's going to be. Um, oh, but first, I forgot. First, let's do the prompt. So next week's prompt, this is from Jill Kendall. I almost skipped over it. The prompt is, open a poetry journal to any page. Go to the end of a poem. Use all or part of the last line to begin a new story or poem. And that's a great prompt because I always think of like what you need is the first line and then the first line kind of has its own momentum and your imagination can run with it. And so if I got a first line, I feel pretty good. The struggle is often to find the first line. So the first line will be provided by your random flipping and we'll see what you come up with. That is next week's prompt given by Jill Kendall. Open a poetry journal to any page, go to the end of a poem and use all or part of the last line to begin a new story or poem. There you go. That's your prompt for next week. And next week's guest, like I was mentioning, and like you already know, next week's guest is going to be Bruce Bennett. Um, Bruce has, let me, uh, let me show this on screen. He's got this images into words book, um, which is all ekphrastic poetry. Um, images into words. Um, that's his newest collection. And there's, so there are all these, um, you know, poems based on paintings. And so you have the scout, friends and foes, etc. That is his newest book. But we'll also be talking about his other books. He's um, one of the rare people who has multiple new and selected poems. I mean, that's how long and uh, wonderfully Bruce Bennett has been writing. Um, his newest new and collected, which is poems from um, the date, it's from like up until 2016. Um, just another day in just our town. There'll be another book that we're looking at. Um, so Bruce Bennett will be the guest. Rallycast number 162, the regular time, Monday, October 3rd, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Thanks a lot for joining me. Have a good week. Goodbye. <laughs>